Hey, what day of the week is it? Does anybody know what day of the week it is? You know, Thursday. Is it Thursday? Yep. Hey, you savage motherfuckers out there in Thursday land. It's Greg Medford from the Greg Medford Show. How are you all doing? Live from Phoenix, Arizona. Got a little show put together for you. You know, it was funny. I was out in town yesterday, and I had two people come up to me, two, which is weird for me, and go, dude, when's the next episode coming out? And I went, oh, because I'm not quite used to people in my, I'm used to uh, in airports when I travel around for business. I'm used to getting stopped by TSA guys who like knives and the occasional knife freak in the airport. Like if I actually had a mistress, I couldn't get anywhere in this world because some knife guy would come up and the jig would be up. So what's weird is in my hometown, I'm used to being like a stranger because, you know, there's like some familiarity breeds contempt. It's like, oh, look, he's got like a little knife shop down in his garage. And uh, and uh, I, I'm not used to local folks like jumping up and saying, oh, my God, there's an, the podcast, though, the political reach with state politics is crossing over into a kind of different group. Um, I was, uh, Amy was at the grocery store, like, I don't know, a couple of years back and we were not actually, I was with her. We were walking down the aisle and I said, Hey, where's the, uh, I was asking her where the, uh, Shelby's chili, the Carol Shelby chili, uh, kit was. And there was a dude down on his knees stocking the bottom shelf, you know, and it was like late in the evening. And the guy goes, Oh my God, is that the knife guy? And he just heard my voice and, and looked up and we had this like big kind of two retards in an airport knife moment. It was kind of funny. Uh, but to be out in one day and have two strangers in Arizona give me a hard time about like when the next episode was all giddy. I thought it was kind of fun. So we're reaching a few people. We're denting a few brains and that's kind of what we want to do. Um, today I've got Kelly Cooper in. He's a former Marine entrepreneur, restaurant owner, and uh, he's decided to go through the uh, soul-crushing exercise of becoming an elected representative to Arizona's 9th U.S. Congressional District. There's a bunch of redistricting bullshit going on all over the country. It happens all the time, so we're in the middle of one of those kind of crossover uh, years, so it's a little weird where the borders are. But uh, let's say hello and welcome our guest, Kelly. And how you doing, Kelly? Awesome. <laughs> Good to have you here. <laughs> so um, uh, talk to us. A little bit about where you grew up. Okay, so I uh, I grew up on in the north suburbs of Chicago. Uh, I was born in Idaho Falls. And my father was in the Navy, a submariner. Why does everybody from Chicago have great thick hair? Is there something in the water up there? You got a nice head of hair. I was just looking at that. Thanks. <laughs> I, I think it's the cold weather. But the cold weather. Maybe it's the water. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, North Chicago. So uh, I born in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Moved to Chicago. You know, Navy tourism and uh, uh, ended up growing up in the north suburbs, moved around a lot when I was young. My mom and dad got divorced and, you know, mom, traditional America, three jobs to keep the kids. And How old are you? Uh, 47. And uh, so you, how old are your parents? When we, were you and your parents split? Uh, I was five, if I remember correctly, okay. which at five, I don't really remember. Yeah, go ahead, rip it. Let's, let's uh, <laughs> just get in a little lay of the land, you know, right. uh, we can always... You know, these, they're traumatic events. They're life-changing events. Even if they aren't painfully traumatic, they are traumatic to our psyche, how these things develop over time. My parents split when I was eight. I, okay. know, I know how it cracked my cosmic egg and kind yeah. of how I had to deal with that. So at five, I get a little little different feel. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that, that divorce was very impactful and, it, you know, it leads you to some of the future that you have. Of course. 
I have two small children, so it affects the way that uh, I am a father. It affects the way that I treat my family. Uh, but I, you know, I grew up in in that area. Uh, I went to and graduated from Libertyville High School, although I went to two different high schools at three different segments. Uh, and after after high school, I went off into the Marine Corps. Uh, it was 0351, uh, once a Marine, always a Marine, Semper Fi, all the, all the traditional stuff. Uh, but that was probably the most impactful time in my life. So the transition from uh, being a, a screw-off uh, kid of a single parent that almost didn't graduate high school to uh, a polished young man with some leadership skills and some drive and dedication to both self and community happened in about three months. And it was an amazing transition, but I spent four years in the Marines, uh, 0351 anti-tank demolitions, and I traveled the world. So in between the two wars, nobody ever shot at me, and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> and and hopefully everybody could understand that. Uh, but I did deploy three times. So Where'd you I, go? I took hours notice in alpha increment to Cuba uh, back in the mid-90s when Castro was sending all the people from prison to Florida. So Guantanamo Bay, is that where you went? Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, we landed there in the middle of the night, swept the base, because at that time Guantanamo was a, a Navy housing facility. Mm -hmm. And uh, we cleaned up uh, the 18 to 20 year old single male camp and got everybody back in, in their groups. And, and then for four or five months, we walked post with uh, no electricity or running water, air conditioning, and what is the equivalent of Arizona uh, summertime. Right. Lots of fun. Uh, after that, I uh, I did a six month trip to South Korea or Okinawa, uh, and then a month of that in South Korea, and then as my time in service came to a close, I made the decision that I wanted to start a family and have some stability in my life instead of moving around a lot. Yep. So I took what you and I would know as terminal leave. So I'd been saving that up uh, and. So I exited in August, although my official departure date's in October, but that transitioned me from 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines to 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines. And immediately upon transition to 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines got deployed to West Africa. And the soul-sucking feeling of abandoning your guys is <laughs> it's awful. But you can't undo that. They won't, they won't send you back. Where did they go in Africa? I don't know. I wasn't part of the unit anymore. Yeah. Uh, it was West Africa. And it, when, when I first came in, they were coming back from Mogadishu and, uh, they had, they had done the live fire stuff. Uh, I, but I don't, I don't know what the mission was uh, okay. once I got sent because that was right at the beginning of my deployment. Uh, what, on and what year are we talking about? 96. So I deployed to UNITAS 96, which is a South American tour. So every ocean bordering country in South and Central America, uh, the equator, southern tip of South America, the Panama Canal, the whole the whole ocean trip. Man, you have you have almost more of like a you have more of a like a sailor's uh, you have more of a sailor's <laughs> background for four years in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Usually, you get stuck in just some butthole part of the world, and you're stuck there shooting at people. The last twenty years, you basically, or you're a tweener. You were right in between the two yeah. the two conflicts. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. There's about you know, it's funny. I got out of the Marine Corps right after the Gulf War because I was like, oh, we'll never have one of these again. <laughs> what right. are we? What are we? And then. And then, you know, we did, obviously. Sure. So, um, time in the Marine Corps, it's funny, you know, like, 
adolescent males as we transition from 17 to 25 uh-huh. it's kind of a red herring but what would we be what would happen to us anyways would we decide when we start paying our own bills we have to grow up anyways or do you get in the marine corps and you're really malleable and they do something to you right so there's a disproportionate number of Marine Corps stickers on cars. Like if you were an alien and you just landed here in America and you drove around, you'd be like, well, there's clearly the big, biggest club in the world is the Marine Corps. And then there's some other stuff. But what's this Marine Corps? We want to know about that. Right. Um, there's clearly something that happens. And it clearly, there. like, I never contemplated, and I've got nothing against the Army. Sure. Uh, other than the fact that, no kidding, Army guys, I've got nothing against the Navy other than the fact that, you know, I'm not gay. Kidding. And I've got nothing against going to the Air Force. My dad was in the Air Force. It's like the post office with airplanes, right? I'm kidding, everybody. So uh, I just never even contemplated going in one of the other branches. Like, it didn't even cross my mind. I was like, what? No, I'm going to the Marine Corps. All right. Um, there's a certain kind of person that kind of goes in, and I think, uh, you know, are almost like open heart, open mind, open soul to what's getting ready to happen. Mm-hmm. And then they do this 250-year-old process. Uh, and, you know, they're nicer some eras than other. They're gentler some eras than other. They communicate more some eras than others. But I think mostly, that's perception, though. Yeah, it is, it is some I mean, perception. We, but, you know, we didn't have any safety cards. You know, you couldn't right. have somebody's safety you, card. You you stress were, cards stress, and all that. Yeah, right? stress cards, right? <laughs> A few years before I went through, you know, they had marched some dudes in the swamp and killed them in Paris uh-huh. Island, you yep. know, so I, it, it was one, it's just an interesting crucible and it's interesting running into Marines, especially East Coast Marines that went through Paris Island. There's just a transformation that happens to young people and, uh, and you, you either channel it into some sort of professionalism and decorum or you channel it into kind of more killer. Mm-hmm. And I see, I saw kind of both those yep. things happen. Um, my professional transformation happened later in life. I was just absolutely a gangster when I got when I got out of boot camp. I was like, okay. So you took that killer part. Yeah, I took the wrong road, man. My head was screwed on completely wrong. So uh, after you served your time in the military, you got out. Uh, uh-huh. Where did you move then? So I moved back to Vernon Hills, Illinois. Okay. Uh, so I was sort of in the neighbor, same neighborhood that I grew up in. Uh, I moved back in with my best friend and his girlfriend at the time, who's now his wife. Okay. Um, I spent a year working on what I was going to do. So similar to that. And, you know, before I joined, I served a, as a line cook, um, flat top grill cook, uh, server, dishwasher, you know, busser, the whole thing Restaurant in, work, in yeah. restaurants, right? Yeah. And so when I got out, I went immediately back to that. And, you know, the most lucrative part of that business is bartending, depending on the place that you're in. And so I started working for TGI Fridays and, you know, this was back when Tom Cruise was cool and flipping bottles and all that. So I did that competition and that was, that was fun in, in the region that I lived in. Uh, but the goal was to get into college and, and start a career, move on to doing something else. Did you go to college? I did. Where'd you so go? I moved to Champaign. Uh, I went to Parkland Community College with the intention of transferring into the University of Illinois, uh, the business school uh, at the time. After my two years, so when I first moved down there, I couldn't transfer restaurants, and I started working for a little little restaurant called Time Out Sports Grill. Local sports uh, legend, uh, a quarterback from the University of Illinois, and, and his cousins, uh, Matt and Andy George, Jeff George, was all involved in that. 
And, you know, I spent about a year there and then I went over to a company called Biagi's. And so at the end of my two years, as I'm transferring or considering the transfer into the University of Illinois Business School, I get offered my first management gig. Now, through my, through my growing up time, uh, a couple of things that I learned was you take jobs to acquire skills, you acquire skills or you amass skills to, to build a, a career or, or freedom from a job, so to speak. So the choice was laid before me. Do I go off to the University of Illinois Business School and spend two more years being polished up to go run restaurants? Or do I accept this job where they're going to pay me and teach me how to run restaurants? What'd you do? Like you can only imagine I did the smart thing. I went off uh, and took the first management gig. Right. I took the on-the-job training, learning how to do what I intended to do so, anyway. So two years of college and then your work experience hustling. Hustling. All right. Um, when... Obviously, spent some years out there. When did you move out here to Arizona? Two thousand three, two thousand four. What brought you here? Uh, my mom. So your mom moved out here to get away from the cold or whatever. So yeah, exactly. So as soon as I graduated high school in ninety three, I went off to the Marines. My sister graduated. She's eighteen years behind me, or eighteen months behind me. She graduated the next year. Um, as soon as my sister was out of school, my mom packed up and moved to where it was warm immediately. Okay. And then, uh, and then you moved out here after your professional life got to a point, or did you meet your woman out here or did you meet your wife there? So it's a funny story. She's from Chicago. We met out here. Of course. And we actually met in one of my restaurants, didn't start dating until five years after she didn't work there. I know that's the story everybody tells. Oh yeah, no, I never dated anybody I worked with. I dated plenty of people I worked with. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go, let's forward now to your businesses here in Arizona. Okay. So you move out here and, uh, so... The Melting Pot. Mm -hmm. uh, is that that's your place, or you got a couple of those? I didn't know it was a franchise. Yeah, so the Melting Pot's a franchise company uh, based out of Tampa, Florida. And when I first started, so when I first moved out here, I worked for a year at Rock Bottom, uh, local brewery, or not even yeah. local, but brewery here that's been bought out and moved on. Uh, so I worked there for a year, and then at the end of my time there, I joined the Melting Pot restaurant in Ahwatukee on Ray Road. So the melting pot that I knew about was in Scottsdale. There was mm -hmm. all right. Is that still there? No. I went on a date there years and years and years ago. <laughs> Everybody and, went on a first date there. <laughs> I never went back. Uh, it, I I I don't know why I never went back, but I had a great time there. Mm -hmm. It's one of those. That's the kind of. That's a food date where there's a lot of interaction around the food, you know, because there's. Yep. It's not normal. So it's not a, it's not something that I ever recommend for a first date because you really need to know someone. It's it's too because there's two a lot of half it's hours. Handsy. It's and, handsy and you're yeah. stuck with each other. Yeah. So if if it's first date or blind date, it's something that you're just not sure about. Well, I wanted you're to stuck. I wanted to trap my dates. You know, that was <laughs> back in those days. I was like, hey, look, you know, she you said can't yes. Run. Yeah, she said yeah. I was we're gonna get stuck with cheese on our fingers, right? So um, you've got a couple of those now. So we have two. Uh, I've had four in the state. So I started at Awatuki. I worked my way up to assistant, ma or I started as an assistant manager, worked my way up to GM, GM to GM of another store, regional manager bought in, uh, sweat equity, parlayed, yada. Sure. Uh, in 2010, uh, we opened the third unit in Glendale on 59th Avenue. In 2014, we bought, and I say we, uh, my partner Dan Arndt is the founding partner here in the state. So in 2014, we bought the Tucson unit. Uh, in 2016, we closed the Tucson unit. It was uh, part of the largest commercial default in America in, in that mall down there. And we were on the backside with 70% vacancy. It's okay. really difficult to convince people to come to a nice dinner. In, in a mall that's failing. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, and, and then you have another restaurant as well, right? So BKD's Backyard Joint. Uh, and is that your project? That's Dan, myself, and Brandon Sorokman. Um, we're all equal partners in that one. And it was our baby, and it was to differentiate or, or create some separation from just the melting pot for mm -hmm. us. It's kind of a, a, a passion project, right? Okay. So Is it doing well? It's doing great. Where's it at? Uh, Pecos and McQueen. Okay. Uh, we've been there for three years in between the Super Bowl and the um, uh, Pro Bowl. So I like to get granular sometimes, especially with folks that are kind of new to the political landscape, because I think it's important for everyday citizens or guys that are just listening in who, mm -hmm. you know, they always think the power class is some elite golf club country club set <laughs> and part of it is oh um, absolutely but the feeding ground for that group is really out here in the out here in the weeds it's guys with regular backgrounds it's gals mm -hmm. with regular backgrounds um what is making you are, are the role that you're currently in professionally are you uh uh are you will you will you be the second bartender in congress then if you if you if you, oh, if you get good elected call yeah <laughs> Yeah, oh, I didn't even think about that. Things. Well, it's auspicious <laughs> company. You guys could have like a drink mix off. That'd be kind right? of funny. So, you know, what's funny is uh, a girl that worked at the bar with her uh -huh. uh, was one of my employees for a while. Really? Batshit crazy, <laughs> batshit crazy. <laughs> Dude, they were friends. And I was like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, huh. <laughs> and, uh, and she turned out to be kind of batshit crazy. Birds of a feather, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you've. Do you fulfill mostly an executive leadership role within the team or, or, or you know, I mean, usually when there's partners with a few guys, somebody's uh -huh. more the money person, somebody's big strategy, and somebody's uh, sleeves rolled up managing team. So give me an idea where you are in that. Is that same with your with your triumvirate of guys? Yeah, so that's a, that's a similar layout to what we have. Uh, and uh, all of us are really roll-up-your-sleeves guys, but that's been my role uh, okay. for – yeah, almost the past 20 years. So you've got the heavy ops experience. Well, for the last two years, I was mopping floors and cleaning the bathrooms at BKD's. I mean, through through the pandemic, when uh, Governor Ducey shut everything down, uh, and, and we have a 12, so we were able to open before bars were, so we're considered a restaurant, right? But for those three or four months, I the chef and I lived there. We served to-go food. I mean, I, I handed out toilet paper to people that couldn't get it, right? And, and it's a funny story, and I don't know how long we have, but... We got as much time as you want, man. So so I'm in Walmart one day. I, I bought, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I tend to think ahead, and I bought a, off of Amazon some toilet paper, paper towels. Not really part of the hoarding class, but just a little bit to, to get through the beginning. And it turns out I bought just paper towels. So I go to open up the first box of toilet paper, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, this is going to hurt. That's what you're thinking, right? <laughs> you think, oh, man, she got the soft paper towels. Right? <laughs> so then I'm-, I'm Everybody in, in the last year has wiped their ass with some paper towels at some you point. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I go sit in the Walmart line for an hour and a half waiting for them to roll out that one pallet of toilet paper. You remember those days? Uh-huh. And while I'm in line, I'm thinking to myself, this is silly. Like, w w it shouldn't be like this. So I call up my paper guy, and this is a lot of people don't know this. I call up my paper guy, and I'm like, hey, tomorrow I want you to drop off two cases of toilet paper. He's like, yeah, no problem. So businesses were, we had, we had stock. We just didn't have people coming in. So I bought 200 roll cases of toilet paper, 
and kept them on the bar. And anybody that came in for, for their to-go food, I said, hey, how are you doing on toilet paper? Oh, my God, we need some. Here, take as much as you need. That's super funny. Yeah. <laughs> And, well, it was it was a hard lesson for me to you know the attention to detail that we have from Marines. Uh, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. But the solution was there. It created an opportunity for me to help the community, and it, it was it was worth it. Especially because you're just sitting there all day long. Yeah, tell me it's not toilet paper. It's one really long napkin. <laughs> it's one really long soft napkin. Right. Okay, so uh, you you kind of have. You guys made it through the pandemic. All your places have stayed open. Yep. Um, so, okay. So the story on that, when you said that you'd been to the Scottsdale unit, Scottsdale opened in 1997. We, after our first 10 year lease, we moved across the parking lot. We, we did another 10 year lease at the end of that 10 year lease. Uh, are you talking about the Scottsdale unit? Mm-hmm. Okay. At the end of that 10 year lease, there is an option in, in, um, commercial real estate for a, a you know, 10 year option. And a lot of times you write it at a, an ever-increasing rate year over year or three-year period, whatever. This one in particular was written at market rate, which is like the oh, death blow. Yeah, yeah. So the landlord wanted another concept. They wanted lunch and dinner and patio. And they were playing at that point on uh, the spring training facility. There was a bunch of building yep, going in there. Yep. They wanted 40% more. Yeah. And so this, you guys shut it down because of that. Yeah. This is like four months before. And that's the one across from like Zips. Zips Sports Bar used to be in the parking lot. And then there was a breakfast place downstairs and a mortgage place right upstairs across the parking lot. Where's the one in Scottsdale you're talking about? Uh, it was at was it like Hayden, Hayden and Royal Palm. Yeah. Hayden and Royal Palm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 was, on the, be... it was on the north side of the complex on the kind of like end unit right there on, on the north side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, you know, if you walk right across the parking lot, there's a two-story building right there. Mm-hmm. Mortgages upstairs. Bre- okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Downstairs. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Further, further south down the complex. Yeah. So we used to be right next door to what was that place? Twenty-six years there uh, starts with a B. Uh, not important. We moved across the parking lot at the end. They wanted a forty percent increase. It was like five months before COVID. Turned out to be the greatest blessing you could have had. Uh, in this market, we thought that we should have two melting pots, and we thought they should be equally separated across. And so, it really, wasn't Scottsdale we were considering, but blessings happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had increased demand in the other two restaurants, and uh, as COVID struck, we were able to survive. Okay, so now uh, are are you? Talk to me a little bit about this. This is a full-time gig if you yes. get elected. And uh, are you going to step away from your businesses? So I, I told you in the beginning that uh, I sweat equity and, and parlayed that into ownership. But that's something that's important to me. And so it's ingrained in our businesses. My operating partners in the restaurants have both been in both melting pots have been with us for close to 10 years or 10 years more. And each of them own a piece of the restaurant. And so what that's allowed is me to have an operating partner in the store and I don't, I don't have to go in and mop the floors anymore. Mm-hmm. I spent a considerable amount of time in all of the restaurants until very recently, but I didn't have to do it. Uh, and now that I have great partners through the same pathway that I took, I can step away from those two. I still do the accounting. So I take a, D, a day a week and do uh, all the, you know, the reconciliations and pay the bills and all the things that are required of sort of that, that level. Uh, BKDs, I was running shifts uh, until about six months ago and really cleaning the bathrooms and mopping the floors yeah. five days a week. Brandon has come in and taken over that role. 
And so for me, all three units are set up for me to, to step back and really focus on representing Arizona. So talk to me about this uh, exercise and brain damage you're getting ready to do. Um, <laughs> what, what makes you want to step away as a successful business guy and decide to jump into this uh, race? You know, truth be told, I never wanted to do this. It was never, it was never in my horizon. It was never something I thought of. But over the last five or six years, you start to wake up as a citizen and look around and say, holy crap, we can't, we can't continue to keep doing this. And so when, when I took my time to look around, I saw a bunch of politicians that were driven by self-interest and financial gain. And I couldn't in good conscience look back down and go continue building restaurants and opening more and focusing on that and then go home and look at my first and second grader and say, hey, I'm sorry what I'm leaving you. You're just going to have to fix it in 15, 20 years. I, just, I didn't think that was appropriate. Okay, so you've got a bunch of pieces to put together. The race has officially begun. We're inside of a year now. So you've got what, 11 months? When, when, what? Nine, eight and a half. August is the primary. Oh boy. Yep. So you got eight and a half months to put this all together. Tell me where you think the district is actually going to end up ish. Give us a little idea for our local listeners. Okay. So district nine, it goes, so it's north of Pecos from McQueen, which is where one of my restaurants is all the way out to about 56th Street in Ahwatukee, which okay. is right at the corner of where my other restaurant is. Okay. And it sort of comes up and tapers up to the 101, and then they come up and loop around to the 51. And the proposed new maps, and I think they're pretty close to final on the federal level, they're going to take some of that Tempe Phoenix and squish it down this way and box it up a little bit more and it's still going to loop down the same way that it was. So I think I'm still going to have both restaurants in district. I'm going to live right in the middle of the district and we're going to cover Chandler, uh, South Phoenix, Ahwatukee area, a little sliver of Tempe, uh, Mesa, some, I believe some Gilbert, uh, and think that's it but maybe clips into a couple of so others. the part that comes up and goes over to the 51 is not there as much anymore no okay. they're, they're pulling that back down i think we might still clip a little bit of the south scottsdale okay all right but that doesn't go final until the so 22nd. basically a lot of east valley correct okay uh and and then so now let's get into the meat and potatoes of it a little bit what what are your uh let me start big and then we'll go small. Okay. Sure. So big, big thing. What's your, what's your goal? What's your overarching principle as you contemplate this? Let's say you pull off, you know, running for Congress at the first time and mm -hmm. getting elected, it is done. It's a Herculean feat. If you're not somebody who didn't take a knife out of a terrorist's hand on a bus in France, or you didn't shoot right, somebody right. in Kenosha and it's national news, right? Sure. Like that kid could run for office right now because mm -hmm. he's got, 100% name recognition. <laughs> sure. Yep. So uh, when you don't have that and you're making this run, because I'm going to be doing the same thing in a few years, what are, you, uh, what are you showing up with after you do this, this crazy marathon that goes on for the next eight and a half months? Tell us what you're coming with. What's your, where's your compass point? You know, uh, hmm. do, like, do you have an issue or do you just tell us what your perspective is? Before. Okay. Well, no, I, have, I have a ton. Uh, All right. Well, give me a couple. We'll, we'll go down a long list, but we'll, we'll start with uh, foundational issues. Uh, I talked about this on Tuesday night uh, at my most recent uh, gathering, and what we talked about was the Constitution. And 
when you look at the Constitution, it's probably one of the smartest documents ever written in history. It is a living document. It's built with the ability to adjust with time. It's built with the ability to look at and 27 times make amendments, right? It's not something that needs to be burnt down. So I would call myself a constitutional conservative that is going to foundation myself in, in what the Constitution says. And if we need to make some changes to it, then you know we write amendments, we propose them, ratify them, if, if, if so believed. Right. Well, good. Let's talk about some amendments. Uh, I have amendments in my head that I would propose. Right. Uh, give me your top amendment, your low-hanging fruit that you think would be the best thing for this country. Uh, term limits, uh, some removing uh, politicians writing their own salaries are, are simple ones. Uh, I, I like my one of my foundational pieces is the 10th Amendment. Right. So pushing back on the federalization and we can get into that a little bit later on, if you like, uh, I'm not a huge fan of taxes. I'd like to look at I can't remember if it's 16 or 17, somewhere in that neighborhood where they came up and started federal taxation. I'd like to look at adjusting that at minimum. What are your ideas on taxes? Because obviously we got to collect them because we got to make the ship. You know, we got to we got to put ships and people uh, around the globe to press our interests we have to have a national defense. We've uh -huh. got to uh -huh. have borders, and we have to have some national security. Uh, uh, do you have a tax proposition? I know that's kind of granular, but it's very granular. I would what I would say is the foundation for me is merit, uh, and all the way across the board, most everything I'm going to make decisions on is based on merit, right? So when we talk about taxes, you hear people talk about progressive taxes. Nah, that's bullshit. Uh, when when you look at a percentage base tax, the more you make, the more you pay. Uh, so if my goal is to say, okay, well, you've been really successful, so let me take more of your money, I, I, I think that's um, penalizing for success. And I don't think that we should be doing that. So oh, you are advocating more of a flat tax kind of, yeah. uh, kind of even hand? I, well, I think that's the way that it should be based, yeah. Okay. Um, and then, uh, how about, are, are there any issues that you're kind of bringing to the table that you want to jump on right away? I mean, uh, unlike being an executive running a, a small in, uh, enterprise, mm -hmm. we get to kind of make all these decisions and we just run with it. Hey, we're changing. We're doing this. We're doing that. <laughs> you're jumping into a body with 435 people in it and we we'll right. all have kind of competing interests. What do you, what are you, uh, going to do the first day you hit the ground running? Build a coalition. For what? Uh, I would say that it's, it's a soft approach to build a coalition for things like, um, removing government interference, uh, especially on the state's level. Mm -hmm. So back to the 10th amendment, mm -hmm. it's talking about term limits, talking about, um, putting salary requirements back into the represented hands. Uh, it's the economy, um, it's such a huge huge topic well it's early in your race and it's always worth asking and i know a lot of times when people are early in their uh, candidacy mm -hmm. they have a tendency to stay very vague they don't want to get pinned down on anything especially with uh especially with uh when people have got political consults working with them they're like hey don't put out all of this stuff that you want to do because that it gives everybody ammo mm -hmm. and it doesn't win anybody over 
I'm the other way. I like information. And well, I, I'll, I'll tell you two things. One, I let my political consultants go yesterday. <laughs> uh, what I found was that I, I wasn't getting what I needed from them. And if, if you have an opportunity to go look at my website, it's kellycooperarizona.com. You go to my issues page, the very top of it says, and I've talked to you earlier about this, it says right is right and wrong is wrong. And it's very simple. So you ask me whatever you want. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of who I am, and I'm not ashamed to, to represent who I am. Well, I just ask, uh, you know, I'm not asking a gotcha or anything like sure. that. I just kind of, like, for there, instance. There's no such thing as gotcha if you believe in who you are. If you were to, if I were to run for Congress right now, and someone said, hey, what issues are, are you bringing in? Let's say I'm representing the area which I live, which is mm -hmm. North Phoenix and Cave Creek. I would say, hey, I'll tell you what my number one issue is for, um, for Arizona citizens is I want to push back on federal government overreach into Arizona. And the second thing at the federal level, what I want to do is I want to advance legislation with uh, bank uh, with folks that have banking control interests in, in as a coalition in Congress so that banks can't discriminate against my Arizona business owners. Mm -hmm. They can't choose to not do business with you because you're a knife manufacturer or a gun manufacturer or something else that they don't like, even though it's legal. Um, and I would, I would do it from the grounds of discrimination. Sure. Uh, you can't discriminate against legal businesses doing legal enterprise that mm -hmm. is legal because you're operating with federal money. I'm just giving you one example. I could kind of run through cause I could think about like, you know, what would I do to monkey with stuff? <laughs> if I was uh, running for president, what I would do is I would lean on the EPA and I would squash the EPA as much as possible. Not mm -hmm. because I want a dirty environment because most of what they do is a waste and bureaucratic overreach. And Pretty I would, typical in government. Absolutely. So I would be doing a lot of the things we saw Trump do, even though he did it with crass language, even though he was divisive with his tweeting, blah, sure. blah, 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 all things that I loved and adored about him. Sure. But I would be in there basically with a, with a scythe cutting off the knees of federal government overreach. But, but, but that's why... That's why he faced so much opposition. Of course. That what, what is described as the swamp, I mean, even in my four months, I feel like I've already experienced it. You, if you go in with your sword drawn, it's like, tele, Marine, it's like telegraphing to the enemy exactly what you're going to do. I'm going to flank you to the right, and then I'm going to bring artillery over the top. Well, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to start defending themselves. They're going to start counterpunching before you even begin. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it, that gets into m many levels, uh, but let's, you know, we talk about Fauci. We could talk about using the health departments to shut down businesses for not requiring uh, vaccines and mask mandates. I mean, the federal government has the obligation to protect us both foreign and domestically, right? So you shouldn't have a foreign power coming in and trying to take over your country. But there is a level with which you have overreach. Their, their responsibility, I think, to our citizens is proper education or at least proper awareness when we're faced with struggles. So when you look at COVID, touchy subject, right? Nobody wants to take a stand on it because they're all politicians and they want to say, well, ho-hum, here's what I think. In the beginning, I thought it was, I thought it was appropriate that we were very protective because we didn't know. But we've spent a lot of time now studying and we've spent a lot of time seeing what things are happening and we've spent a lot of time putting in protections. Now we need to educate people what's actually happening and the protections they have for themselves 
and stop mandating things for people. If, if you want to get the vaccine, by all means, go get the vaccine. If you want to wear a mask because you're, you have compromised immunity or you need to protect yourself or you've been driven by the fear that's out there, by all means, do that. Nobody's asking you not to. But don't tell me I have to. Talk to me about um, education a little bit because this comes up at every level, right? Sure. You know, uh, there's, a great, there's a great saying in politics, all politics is local, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, moms have a tendency to vote much more locally. Men <laughs> and dads have a tendency to vote more internationally. Sure. Just an actual statistical fact. Um, so I think anytime you're trying to present yourself out there, we've got to find a way to present the local and present the, the bigger perspective. You know, sure. as a guy, I'm always thinking about my son going off to war. Mm-hmm. And I think about voting... During the 2020 cycle, I've had so many conversations with my friends' wives and women uh, talking about politics because they know I'm so engaged on it. And I talk to women and so many of them. You see the numbers, clearly upper middle class. You know, the the, uh, 40 to 70-year-old white woman has pretty much turned the election. It was not black people who turned against Trump. It was not Hispanics. Right. We had record African-American, ref, record Hispanic voting for Republican. Mm-hmm. Nothing had ever happened like it before. Well, that's going to continue. It, I believe it will also. Mm-hmm. But we had an abandonment. This is where it's like not racial. And you have white women who are completely out of the Trump camp because mm-hmm. they heard him say some mm, mean things. Most guys have said something misogynistic. All guys have said something misogynistic, and a lot of guys say misogynistic stuff as gallows humor when they're away from microphones. And, sure. And, 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 you know, people say locker room talk, but it's really two guys standing at the golf course, teeing off, making some crass comment. And a lot of it's just blowing off steam from the formality of life. You just sure. gallows humor ragging on the absurdity of it all because we all know we're going to be dead soon enough. Right. So you just poke fun at the absurd. So basically, you know, I, I, I ask women all the time and they tell me all these absolutely trivial reasons why they didn't vote for Trump and they've got a 12-year-old son. Mm-hmm. And I go, I go, well, listen, you know, I, I hope I, uh, I hope that when our sons go off to war, I hope that you got, I hope that you're willing to volunteer your son the same way my son will volunteer. Mm-hmm. And they look at me, they're like, what? I'm like, you know, we don't have a draft now because guys like me and my son, we always join up. Mm-hmm. And my dad, we just join up. Right. But if it gets bad enough, they'll draft. Mm-hmm. So my my curiosity, plus, you know, you don't know what your 18-year-old son's going to do after school when he's got his own car. Sure. The military's full of kids who stopped at a recruiter's office on the way home from school. Right? Yeah. So I say, you know, listen, you know, you don't like a little mean tweet from a guy that had $1.97 a gallon gas, the craziest smoking economy we've ever seen, home prices, um, um, wages rising. Sure. I mean, all of this stuff and first president in my lifetime that hasn't gotten us involved in a war. Mm-hmm. And you didn't like his tweets and some of his uh, uh, old-fashioned way he spoke, and he's a little clunky, and he was a little direct, and you got to actually hear what he really thought on stuff. Right. So the trade-off is you get to send your son to war or my son, mm-hmm. and because that's what you get when we get the current president in office. Feckless leadership emboldens our enemies. So um, talk to me a little bit about some international stuff, because it matters in the House of Representatives, right? It's where we declare war. Well, so uh, let's start at the beginning. 
whether you like me or not at the end of this, whether you want to vote for me or not at the end of this, this isn't a single issue election, A, and you should be both vetting your candidates and putting people in office that understand. And, and so what I mean by that is look for a veteran. Look for a veteran because when, when faced with um, foreign affairs, uh, the potential of sending someone off to war, I, I don't know a veteran that would say, yeah, let's do that. They would, they would look for any solution, including uh, showing strength and saying there's nothing off the table at the beginning. That's not what we have today. Right. So so look for your candidates. Find the candidate that's going to represent making sure that we don't go to war over silly stuff. Right. Um, for expansion of territory for whatever reason. Uh, I, when you talk about foreign affairs and we talk about this president, I can go... We can start at the obvious Afghanistan and the 13. And my, I talked about this the other day as well. My, my wife will tell you, I'll tell you, I may tear up today. Um, I went between rage and tears for a long time. Uh, I stood on a stage at Veterans Oasis, Oasis Park with a group of 12 more reading off names of military members that were killed. And, you know, they served honorably. They did their work. They did what we asked them to do. And we didn't do what we were supposed to do. The, the leadership making the decisions made poor decisions, put them in vulnerable positions, and maybe not directly, but allowed for that to happen. And when I think about my brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters that are put out there and left twisting in the wind... But it's even more than that. It's the American citizens left behind. And you hear that conversation going on now, right? At the beginning, we talked about, oh, 100 or 200 people, and none of them really want to leave. Well, I don't, I don't know that I would ever believe that part. No. But now it's turning out it's close to 900, mm-hmm. not including the, the people that helped us, not including the people that stood by and translated and put themselves and their families in very vulnerable positions. We just abandoned them. And I don't know if anybody remembers this, but that's how we created Osama bin Laden in the first place. (laughs) So now you don't have border security and you've created a bunch of people that we just abandoned. And you can follow that all as far as you want. Yeah. The next one I would suggest is you look at what's going on in the Ukraine and you look at what's going on in Taiwan. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's coming. You know, uh, people are sitting by, uh, you know, I just talked to one of my friends and he's like, oh, he's doing a pretty good job. And I was like. I was fucking beside myself because I was sitting there going, you know, you're a smart guy and you got a good gig going. How, what, what the fuck do you how think? How did you fall for this? How the fuck do you think what's going on off, you know, the biggest, all right, look, we're not going to go to war over Ukraine. And if we do, we ought to have our goddamn head examined. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're not worried about us going to war in Ukraine. But that's what I mean by means taking we ought to have our table. goddamn head examined. Right. And then you look at Taiwan, Taiwan's going to happen. Now, I don't know if it'll happen this term, but if this clown or uh, uh, Camel Toe Harris, she gets elected, the second term, the next four years of weakness, I think they're going to take Taiwan. And then what happens? Because the coalition around Western liberalism and democracy and capitalism falls apart 
if it doesn't have a tough guy on the playground to advocate for a fair soccer team. I would, I think I agree. I think I would go a step further though. I think that China does happen this term. And the, the reason that I think that is, and, and they'll argue, right. They'll say, well, we're the third largest trading partner with Taiwan and they don't want that economic strife. They don't, they don't want to invade Taiwan and then, you know, lose business with us. I mean, come on. Do you, does anybody believe that, that we have the intestinal fortitude to not trade with China and Taiwan if they invade Taiwan? I don't think so. And I think it's so multifaceted. I think it's, it's two things. I think it keeps the um, their nationalist... Like, if you go to China right now, there are mm -hmm. just billboards up everywhere talking about the imperial Western demon, uh, sure. devilish Americans. and that's, how, the, that's the problem with state-controlled media. Yeah, you don't see this stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they get to put that stuff out. Um, but they're over there... Taiwan's a competitor of China. Mm -hmm. They want the competitor. Right. And not only is Taiwan a competitor, Taiwan is a pivot point for us to pivot away from China. Mm -hmm. And they want to get rid of all of that. And then the thing Americans don't think about is China's aspirational Navy uh, really needs deep water ports for uh, silent launch of submarines, mm -hmm. which is on the eastern coast of Taiwan. So they don't have the right ports. Uh, China doesn't have the right ports for launching submarines against us that we can't track. Right. In Taiwan, they do. Mm -hmm. And they. I think it's a strategic, it is propaganda, and it is a competitive partner, and I, a competitive um, adversary. And I think they, they get three big wins for it, and they know we're still going to buy knockoff sure. piece of shit Black & Decker drills made in China. Well, let's drill down into propaganda a little bit. So when I talked about state-controlled media, and, and you know, you can parallel that back all you want, but... Uh, that propaganda is what's happening in the Ukraine. It's how Russia took Crimea in the first place. They sent in people that propagandized and sowed dissent. Sound like anything going on around here, sowing sure. dissent, sure. right? I would suggest that, and some people will talk about them doing it in unison, but I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that Russia and the Ukraine happens at the beginning, but by summer, and China-Taiwan goes after the Olympics, later in the year that that would be what i expect to happen but it's less about predicting and predicting and being accurate it's more about the cost in life and callousness that and poor leadership that we're taking right in in our approach to trying to deter that nobody wants to go to to go, go to war nobody wants to send our children and say hey go fight for the ukraine or go fight for taiwan but you want you want these other people to believe that we want to deter that and we haven't done it. And I would take another step and say, what have we done today to start laying a pathway to bringing home the Americans that are in the Ukraine and that are in Taiwan? Because what happened in Afghanistan, you're going to see it repeated multiple times. Yeah. And we know it. We've seen it. Yeah. But we're not doing anything about it. Well, I know Taiwan's coming. I don't know much about Ukraine because we don't have many financial ties there. But right. I know I see uh, the largest semiconductor plant in the world being built here north of town, mm -hmm. Taiwan Semiconductor. You know, they're not changing it to USA Semiconductor. No, they're not. Taiwan's exporting manufacturing all over the United States right now, mm -hmm. Western United States. 
you can see what's going on. They see the writing on the wall and they're pulling their, their, their infrastructure. They're pulling their, you know, the guys that are still independent shot callers running companies, yep. they're saying, let's go to America and let's get this set up over there. Cause this isn't going to last long. Yeah. They're thinking ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And that to me, you know, they know what's going on there. I would say way better than we do. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first time you have red Chinese airplanes in formations of 24 and 40 rolling through your airspace, it ought to make your blood curdle a little bit, you know? All right. So, uh, you know, I feel like uh, my sense talking to you is uh, you're not hawkish about war, but you're really big on having a big stick ready just in case. Yeah, and, I'd, I'd say that describes it about right. And, you know, the thing about um, what I called power diplomacy, power diplomacy only works if you're willing to use it. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be, you know, the dollar exists right now, not because it's securitized to anything other than the good faith and credit of the American people. Okay. And the coalition of Western liberalism, that's the you know cornerstone of freedom that's liberated and raised the lives of so many people in the last 200 years around mm -hmm. the globe. The, the cornerstone of that is following through on what you say you're going to do and having a partner you can count on. Right. And we're, we're right now a partner that I'm not totally sure about. And it's not the Paris Climate Accord. It's well, safety stuff. We, it's, we said, we've already telegraphed everybody you can't count on us. We've, we've right. done it over and over again. Right, right. Especially the last year. What I've seen the last year just makes me sick. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard my friends that are a little left of center, you know, criticizing why we stayed in Afghanistan. I was like, hey, listen, do you throw a pickle and you could hit terrorists over there? They're, they're, it'll hit three terrorists on the way. They'll, they'll kill anybody. They don't care. They don't even care what side you're on. Well, that, that's measurable now, right? When we pulled out, how fast did they take back over? Right. Instantly. It was almost negotiated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it wasn't almost. It was negotiated. Right. Um, you know, there's a, a reason that uh, the, Donald Trump was wanting to pull us out of there and he kept a small contingent, contingent there and wanted to keep a small contingent of SF, uh, QRF guys there mm -hmm. because it's a hotbed of awful activity and we still need to be there. Right. Well, while we're not there, not only do they have all of our stuff to train, but they're... They, they still hate us just as much as ever, and there's probably more people that hate us now. Well, that was going to be what I said. Because we've accidentally killed a lot of people, too. <laughs> we we have, uh, and we've sowed discontent with people that were supposed to be our friends, people that we were supposed to support and back. And right. so it's you, not just the people that hated us before. It's now the people that we betrayed. taught to hate us because we betrayed them. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. When we were talking about Afghanistan a little bit earlier, one of the, one of the more frustrating things for me, and I'm going to take this shot, Joe Biden on the tarmac watching coffins come off a plane looking at his watch. I don't know if there's anything more callous that you could do than not give that time. And Democrats are going to say, well, you're just cherry picking something because you want something to, you want an applause line. No, I've been all over the world. Those people, I know gold star moms, those people sacrifice. They deserve more. You know, I, I've tried to be like, Hey, you know, I look at my watch a lot throughout the day cause I got a heavy schedule and there's a dude, sure. but he's not scheduling himself. Right. You know, like I want to give him some room to be a human that steps on it, uh, uh, you know, that of makes, course. makes him a step. But when be in the moment though. But for that, that's the thing. Like for most people, haven't been there while a a aluminum coffin with a soldier in it is being unloaded, and mm -hmm. I have. 
and it takes your breath away. So to see somebody look at their watch, mm -hmm. I get it. It's crushing. Well, I, how could you not be in the moment when that goes on? All right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I talk about that stuff. Kind of gets me. So I, uh, it's funny. We got a national cemetery right up the road yeah. and I, I drive by it every day to work. And I was trying to be as gentlemanly as I could about that. And when I saw that, I was like, how could that guy be thinking of anything else? If your kid's in the hospital and you're at that event, at that ceremonial moment, it would be a moment where you don't think about your kid because it's a heavy-duty moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny you brought it up and it kind of impacted me that way. Because uh, I, I, every time I drive by the cemetery, I think about the guys I know that are there. Because I've flown for their funerals a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, it kind of takes my breath away. And the, what I've seen is this kind of disregard, the disregard the way the military has been treated. And, uh, and you know, I don't think about the military like a holy order. It's, right. Uh, and I'm not like, oh, everything's about the veterans. I'm not really that way. But to see how the whole group has been disrespected as a whole by the defense secretary that he put in, by their attitudes about uh, the vaccination and and the orders they're forcing all these young people to comply with. Let me ask you this. Why does the post office get exceptions for the, the vaccine mandate? And the military doesn't. And the military doesn't. Right. And government workers. Because mm -hmm. they're in unions. I mean, it's, it pisses me off so much. There is a... There is a there's a blatant disregard, and then what happens is when they they have this, and look, I understand why lefties don't like the military, and the reason they don't like the military is because the Pentagon in Washington mm -hmm. is the biggest bunch of money wasting bureaucrats that have ever walked the face of the planet, and they're a bunch of back sniping, backbiting politicians. Hundred percent. So they think that's the military. Right. They get jaded by it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh. And, and and maybe you know maybe that's the crux of the matter. They deal with that all the time, and then they treat everybody else. But their disdain that they have for that group of people ends up killing them, mm -hmm. because the weakness that they project, because of their pivot away from the military class, mm -hmm. projects this weakness that our enemies rise, and then we get stuck going to war to save face. Right. Because you know most of the time we go to war to save face, mm -hmm. and it's the, I mean, it's the worst thing ever. Right. Well, and where was all of this a year ago? Where was all of this two years ago? And I don't mean the disdain for the veterans. I mean the saber rattling from China and the saber rattling from Russia. It, it was gone. Yeah, it Their hands were full. It wasn't what it is today. Right. And it's because I think that they believed. Yeah. Plus, we had a, uh, you know, we had, the thing about leadership is being proactive, not reactive. Mm -hmm. So we had, a, we had a commander in chief who was pushing other stuff to keep them busy responding that they had to deal with that mm -hmm. you know if you're engaging china on trade and you're engaging china on tariffs and you're engaging china on their trade practices they're 
plate gets full and they're not thinking about invading Taiwan because there's nothing else going on. You know, idle hands are the work of the devil, right? So they get busy <laughs> over there like, what are we going to do next? Well, we got some political problems here. We might as well take back Taiwan because that's good PR. Right. That's a win for China. Yep. All right. So you're you're not like a neocon hawk. You're like a strength. You know, a lot of guys are age-ish. I'm older than you, but guys that have been downrange or been deployed are, I find, the least likely to want to send people off to battle, mm -hmm. but they're the most likely to want to be scary. Mm -hmm. You know Jordan Peterson? Mm, maybe. The online uh, clinical psychologist. Mm -mm. If you get a chance, I think um, you should listen to him. Okay. And it will transform you over the next year and be part of the process as you go from citizen mm -hmm. to winning candidate. Um, Jordan Peterson talks about, and it's interesting he's been talking about it lately. He says, the most important thing for a man to do is be absolutely dangerous. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it just, everybody's heads pop when he says it. And they say, well, you know, violence. And he says, I didn't say violent. I said dangerous. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, it's virtuous to be dangerous. And they said, oh, how can you say that? He goes, well, how virtuous is it if you're a wussy, a wussy boy? Right. who can't defend his family, his woman, his children, or his culture. And so you're you're kind and gentle because that's your only option? He goes, that's not virtue. That's weakness. Mm -hmm. He says the most important thing is to be dangerous and be a gentleman right. who can arrange flowers on the counter for your wife before she gets home or help your kid with math and, right, right. and be gentle with them and so that the capability for dangerous violence is there mm -hmm. and it's totally controlled. He says, that's virtue. If you have the ability to be dangerous and you choose to be righteous and good and kind and gentle, he says, that's the virtuous man. Right. But the guy who is uncapable of being, he said, that's not virtuous. That's all he's got. Right. Right. As a country, I think it's important. We have to be really dangerous to be kind and gentle and project ourselves into the universe. Correct. And that's how we built, in my view, where where we had been. You know, you it pieced through strength and the, but the restraint to be uh, a kinder, gentler place. It's funny. Uh, everybody always is theorizing about this stuff, and I I have a I have a one of my favorite kind of defenses. Is to say, you know, when I talk about, let's say, the conservative class, the mm -hmm. Trumpers, for whatever, I go, hey, listen, you know, for eight years, the caliphate was the new normal, and there was nothing we could do about it, and he shut that shit down in six months. Yeah. And that's what's called taking action leadership, and just by having the will to power, like, I'm willing, you guys go make this happen, mm -hmm. it happens. He said, a lot of times, you just have to say it so, yet for it to be so. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, I mean, that's really leadership, and that's what we're missing completely right now. I teach my kids on a, a regular basis, and it's sort of peripheral to the to the conversation. But I teach my kids that nobody that ever said they couldn't ever could, right? And it you you will it into being by saying it, right? Yeah. If you if you don't do it, it's a guarantee you won't. Mm -hmm. If you do say it, it doesn't mean you will. But you ain't ever gonna get there if you don't say right. it. So talk to me a little bit about the campaign. So you've okay. got eight and a half months left. You're going to be bringing on some new team members. Mm -hmm. um, what is, um, you know, kind of what's your strategy? 
who are you running against? You said a couple of people. This is all for everybody watching in this Republican primary stuff we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so Republican primary. Uh, in, in the primary, just like every Republican primary across the country, I imagine there's a plethora of people that want to get involved. How many folks do you have kind of in the field right now? Ten, I think. Okay. Uh, in, in my campaigning, and I'm a grassroots guy. I want to be out. I want to meet everybody. I want, like you and I are doing right now, I want everybody to have the opportunity to ask me questions and see the integrity in the answers and know that they have faith in what I'm saying is what I will do. So that's that's how I plan to do it. Uh, I have to find the right team that understands that and can push that for me. So it's yeah. being in the right places, I can't manage it all. I need somebody so to help. So you're doing a little bit of a mid-campaign shift over right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, talk to me about some hot-button issues. A lot of people are issue voters. Sure. Um, I don't. Don't I, listen, everybody. Don't be a single issue voter. I, I, I was just gonna. I was just getting ready to do the same footnote. I think being a single issue voter is one of the. I think it's one of the most myopic and non-self. It's the most self-serving and self-destructive thing you can do. It's how we've been divided. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I had uh, I had a female politician uh, running for office in here, and we had a pretty deep talk about abortion. Mm-hmm. And she gave me the very pro-life Republican plank answer. And I basically said, you know, we've got a problem in, in the conservative movement in the, in the Republican Party with our blanket black and white answers. Because most of us are over 50 mm -hmm. or close to it. Most of us are over 60. And we're all talking about stuff that's in our rearview mirror. Right. You know, we talk about abortion. It doesn't affect almost any of us our age. Sure. But it affects our kids. And our kids have a tendency to be super left. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to have a nuanced conversation. What was super fascinating about it is my daughter's in this uh, international baccalaureate program, and they had just been talking about abortion and the actual misconstruing of case law that was used to pass Roe v. Wade. And yeah. and she, I got home and we started talking about this. And I said, hey, watch us debate, you know, kind of debate about this. Uh, she gave me the really conservative answer, and then I started asking her questions about it. And, you know, she carried herself well, but we lose a lot of young people when we talk about these issues that actually face them. Mm -hmm. So talk to me. Give me uh, give me your take on abortion. Two guys sitting here talking about something we're not supposed to talk about. I was going to say, we're two guys sitting around talking about abortion. Yeah, I, I, You know, I have two kids. I have a first and a second grader. So I'm, I'm fairly close to it. My wife went through, uh, hopefully she doesn't kill me when I get home for sharing, but... We went through preeclampsia with both pregnancies and both of my kids were born premature and we spent a fair amount of time in the NICU. She wanted three. She still wants three and we can't. It's not, it's not healthy for her. Uh, I believe in pro-life. I think while there's exceptions, we don't, we don't write how we're going to behave based on the exception. And that applies to almost everything in life. If you, if you behave to the exception, um, if we rule to the exception, if we make rules to the exception, but we, in business it's true as well. Right. Uh, you you create an environment that's unhealthy for business, as as I'm tying it to business, but it, it, it's not the way to lead people. And it's not the way to represent people. So when it comes down to abortion, what I would tell you quite simply is there comes a time where it's not just about 
that person. It's also about the other person that needs protection. And there's nobody, well, there's plenty of people speaking up for the person that needs the protection. Uh, but it's falling on youthful deaf ears. They, they, don't, it, they don't see it that way. And they'll give you the argument, well, so you want freedom of choice when it comes to the vaccine. You don't want you, it, my body, my choice when it comes to the vaccine, but it's not my body, my choice when it comes to abortion. And what I would say is the not my body, my choice argument with abortion, it's not just your body. There's right. another body involved. Right. And so I would say that it should be the, and, and I think that this is the conservative stance as well. It should be very, 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 very rare, if at all. But, I mean, we can't, we can't be black and white. That's not how the world is. So, so, so uh, and, and this is a corner that conservatives get painted into, mm -hmm. and it's the way they get a lot of lefty votes. Because okay. they paint us into these corners. They paint us into a box that's mm -hmm. not real. And and then they're morally abject about it, but they can say the thing that feels good to the 19-year-old female voter. Sure. Uh, and I say a couple of things. First of all, I ask women, hey, do you think if a, guy, if a man gets a woman pregnant, he should be responsible to help support the child when they have the child? Mm -hmm. And everyone says yes. So what happens if they have like a fling for a couple of months and then they really never really dated and they kind of break up and she ends up pregnant? Should she be able to go sue him for support? And they say, oh, yes. <laughs> and and then, well, what if they just have a one-night stand? Well, yes. And I start with the, you know, long-term couple. They decided not to get married, broke up, and she ends up being pregnant during the breakup. Mm -hmm. And then ends up being pregnant after a short fling, ends up being pregnant after a one-night stand. So actually, the guys are responsible. So you actually, you do want the guy involved, mm -hmm. culpable. And they're like, uh-oh, because he just, uh, they, they, they look like a deer trapped in the headlights. I'm like, okay, so if we, either we are or we aren't responsible. And if right. we're responsible, that means we're responsible for something mm -hmm. that's not you. So now, we've agreed, there are three of us in the equation, and I get a say. Right. I You don't get my money and I get no say. Mm -hmm. If you want the money, then I get a say. Now, I may not win, but I get a vote. Right. And there's three of us here. <laughs> True. So I kind of start the conversation with folks, and it, it puts people back on their heels a little bit. So they're, they, they get a little tiny bit willing to even have the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because a, a lot of women are just like, nope, it's women's right. Blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, hold on a second here. So I was talking to my daughter about it, and I said, what mistakes in life should the government have to pay for of its citizens when you make a mistake where is that line and she said well what do you mean i said well i mean if if let's say birth control is 99 effective that means if you have sex 100 times during the right week of the month you're going to get pregnant mm -hmm. and she kind of looked at me i go it's just it's 99 which means it's one percent not which have have sex in 100 first week of the months <laughs> right you're gonna you could have a baby likely and she kind of looked at me i said so should you participate in that behavior what if i said there's a one in 100 chance the gun's gonna go off when you pull the trigger on your head would you play that game after you've been drinking mm -hmm. she kind of looked at me like uh you know they're being told this thing only from a women's right perspective sure. and, they're, and they're not being taught this humans matter perspective and and then the other side of it is you know what do you tell somebody? I was talking to this politician. I said, 
How about the girl who comes in and she's pregnant from her uncle? Oof. That happens. Mm-hmm. It's not the kid's fault. Right. What do you tell her? Well, you got to have her parents come down. She's 14. Mm-hmm. So now the parents got to come down and one of the parents has to find out that their sibling impregnated their child. And so these are crazy things. And these are why these crazy, you talk about legislating to the exception. Mm-hmm. These are these crazy exceptions that they always want to paint us into the corner about. Right. And we have to find some. But that's not how the law should be written, right? We have to find some way to accommodate these aberrations sure, of, of, course. of, of uh, human behavior that are awful and they're outside the norm. We have to find some way to accommodate those and also have not, abortion not be used as birth control. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the concern. And, at, you know, I, I think the line's not as pro-life, pro-choice as everybody makes it. I don't think no. it's quite as binary. Do, is one of your kids a daughter? Uh, oh, yeah. You have one uh, one daughter, one son? Mm-hmm. I got a mismatch too. And, and uh, you know, so I think about, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff a lot. So my daughter said, well, what if I came home pregnant next week? And she's 15. And I said, well, I said, I'll tell you what I would do, kiddo. I said, I would let you know that you made a boo-boo. And now it's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And now that it's your responsibility, here's what you can do. You got a bunch of options. You can have the baby and your mom and I are going to help you to right. the end of the earth. Mm-hmm. You can have the baby and if that's too much, you can put it up for adoption. Mm-hmm. You can have the baby and take a year off school. And and you could do this other awful thing. And the other thing is there's a pay, there's a price for that. And I told a story. I took a friend in college to get an abortion. It wasn't anything to do with me. I just happened to have a car. Not everybody had a car in college back right. in the day. And she contacted me for years on that date afterwards. Those things that we do. Psychology of it. Yes. The, the, the emotional cost to women. They, they are so caught up in not interrupting school. They're so caught up and it was a whoops. They're so caught up and my dad or my mom's going to be mad at me. They forget about the psycho- psychological implications. And mm-hmm. the fact that the pro-choice people don't even want to tell anybody about all these options. They want to make it mandatory. You're not allowed to talk to people. The guys can't come in abortion clinics. You know, all of these kinds of rules tells you there's skullduggery going on. And it's not even about it's not even about women's health anymore. Right. It's just a crazy, unhinged issue that they use to strip women off the uh, conservative voting rolls. Um, you know, Texas is getting ready. Single to, issue voting. Yeah. So are it, it sounds like you're pro-life, but you don't have your heels dug in about it as far as the nuance for the I'm, people. I'm, I'm pro-life and I don't want to legislate exceptions. There should be mechanisms built in for exceptions, but you're talking about another life. I mean, at the end of the day, it's another life. Does, does does that person deserve any kind of say or somebody to stand up for them? So yeah, there there are exceptions. There's no two ways about that. And, and we as a society have to recognize that and stop having this conversation as all or nothing. Right. Because there's no such thing in this right, life. Right, right, right. And as long as we have the conversation as all or nothing, then it becomes a single issue and that's it. And people people won't won't engage with the other side. So if you're not ready, I mean, and not everybody's ready to have a kind of like nuanced parse talk about it. I can see you're clear in your head about it. 
listeners and especially females are going to mm-hmm. be like, well, what does that mean? What does he mean? Exceptions. We need to have, do you have anything kind of thought out in your head about how to handle that? Or I know it's not in the congressional purview, but I also know it's one of those things that people, uh, they want to know about the people that they vote for, you know? Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is when it's not in the congressional purview. So not at this as, time as it, re- well, as it relates to me, my job is to make sure that that remains a state's rights issue, period. That's constitutionally the way that it's built. That's the way that it should be. I think that the state should look at it, and maybe that goes through the doctor, and there has to, but I, I'm, I don't have a nuanced... Okay. But there are exceptions, and they have to be recognized. The reason why I'm asking this, and it wasn't to gotcha at all... No, no, it's, it's fine. Uh, I think because of the nature of the news cycle and 10 mm-hmm. second and 20 second sound bits, we have forgotten there is a bunch of nuance to this. You know, I've seen polls that people are pro-life, that are very, very pro-life, mm-hmm. become very squishy when it's their daughter. Right, right. And and which tells me pro-lifers, they have a sentiment that their heart wants, mm-hmm. they have a rationale that overrides it, and there is a middle ground. Right. And But uh, that's true of both sides. Absolutely. But nobody acknowledges it and because of it we get point painted into this crazy religious zealot corner Mm -hmm. and and misogynistic and anti-women corner right and then the women they get painted into this furry armpitted uh uh pink hat wearing lunatic crowd with bulging eyes (laughs) and the truth is there is this we all 80% of us think about the same. We all want this very best and we're all willing to make some personal exceptions and and that goal line changes based Mm -hmm. on the nuances of the moment. So just having the conversation with folks that say they're pro-life and um, pro-choice, because I do the same thing if I get a a, a lefty on who's going to talk about it. And they're really confident talking about it until you start talking about it. They don't know shit about it. They don't know shit about the legalities of it. They don't know shit about Roe v. Wade. They don't understand the constitutional argument on why it was made legal. They don't understand why it's being potentially reviewed and turned over. They don't understand why it's even an issue. They think it's a women's rights issue, and that's all they can see. Right. Um, So it's funny when you start talking to them, they almost panic because they have this faith-based view based on nothing. Right. Um, and I like talking to conservatives about it because people need to see the conversation. And I see cr- conservatives start very hard line because it's easy to say in five seconds. Sure. And then as you start parsing it out a little bit, everyone says, hey, you know, there's 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 some squishy room in the corner of this position. And, and, and then everyone's less clear. And that's the only thing that's important to me is people aren't too draconian about what their ideas are because there is a bunch of area in the middle where when it gets personal, people change their moods. Right. Well, and I, I think I would probably take the same approach that that you're taking or you're portraying that you will take with your daughter, with my daughter. A, I would hope that I would have had the conversation where we wouldn't be having that right. at 15. But if we were there, I would want her to understand that um, we're her family. We are always going to support her decisions, but we're going to learn all the decision options that are out there so we can make the best one. Right. And, and it's not 1850. Yeah. So we're not, there's a ton of reasons for all kinds of things. So you, you want to, you want to make sure that you're clear about it, but either side taking, taking that far exception and making that the issue 
We can't do that. We can't continue to do that. that okay. That's not healthy. And we do it across the board in politics. Talk to me about um, the prison system in the United States. Have you thought much about it? I know we've got a lot of commercial prisons here in Arizona. Um, talk to me about, I mean, we've got a, a bunch of things all kind of crashing into our culture right now. We have the convergence of these things, and they are not unrelated. One, mm-hmm. um, criminal justice reform. Okay. Okay. When you talk about criminal justice reform, most people are like, hey, I'm all for reform. And of course, me, I'm like, what are we reforming? Before you go. Before I give the green light, I want to understand what we're talking about. The tail has wagged the dog to where we are. We didn't get here because we just put our finger up in the air. So fuck it. Let's just throw everybody in prison. (laughs) So so, uh, we've got criminal justice reform, which may be a real thing. Mm -hmm. We've got... uh, racism in our cr- criminal justice system mm-hmm. and and that, and i think when they say that's part of criminal justice reform they're worried about the tendency for uh a black and white person to be treated differently the same right. yeah the same right and then uh and then the final thing would be uh law enforcement mm-hmm. and and i think they're kind of like three legs of a milk stool we have to treat people equally before the law which we do in a lot of ways and we miss in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to uh, incarcerate consistently and I think we need to, you know, enforce the law and make people know when they get out of line, they're going to get busted for it because right. it holds the mess together. Mm-hmm. Give us a little idea where you're at on that. And it's pushing our culture right now, right? We, you know, two years of riots and now, and, and now uh, swinging the pendulum back the other way a little bit. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we don't see it as much here where you and I live right. because we're pretty conservative as far as law enforcement goes in Arizona. And, you know, they. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, but you, there's there's some more to it than that, too. You have the Department of Justice investigating the Phoenix Police Department. And, you know, what's what's the goal? What are we looking for when we're doing that? And, you know, the stated goal is fairness and equality in the way that we handle our business. And to your point, you're absolutely right. The The law should be both conceived on equality. There shouldn't be a hint of, well, we're doing it because of this. It should be applied equally, uh, and it should be legislated or, or um, through the court system, the application of punishments should also be even-handed. even-handed. It's difficult to say that because now when you talk about uh, – Justice reform, I guess, is the is the right word. Uh, when you start putting in blanket um, requirements of sentencing, so sentencing requirements, mm-hmm. it it removes some of those other things. But some of those other things open up the door for unequal treatment, or at least the perception of unequal treatment. Yeah, that's a big, big animal. Uh, I would say uh, first that our prison system shouldn't be for profit. You have to take that out. Uh, if, if there is, if the prison systems are being operated for profit, there is always that piece of, well, I can buy somebody to help feed my economy, right? Uh, further back, we got to stop demonizing the police. We have to train well, we have to train regularly, and then we have to supervise. We can't just send people out and say, here you go. But we also have to police ourselves. And I, so I, I, I like this story. It's a military story, uh, but it, it sort of gets, I think, at a little bit of this. Uh, in, in my platoon when I was in, we had two young men um, 
similar upbringings, but on both sides of this argument. One black, one white. Very vocal about where their upbringings are from. One's Malcolm X and one's uh, flying the flag at Dixie. And what did, what did the, the unit do with them? They made them room together. And you know, like I do, what that does. Well, now they're best friends. So uh, self-policing uh, within the force is going to matter. Uh, their integrity as a police force is judged by how well they self-police themselves. And historically, it's not always been perfect. So these are all things that I think that we have to encourage. I don't have a, a single answer. I'm not, I don't have a legislation that I'm going to propose that says, well, we must do this and we must do that and we must do that. I, I think that we have to pull back the curtains and look at everything with a sanitizing light and uh, judge where we may, but make adjustments where we need to when we find those things. Uh, I don't believe that racism is rampant across the country the way it's being portrayed. I think it's being portrayed as a political issue. But when we do find it, we have to sanitize it. We have to call that out. Not everything that's being attributed as racism is racism either, though. So we have to be careful about that. You know, it's funny. I, I'm, uh, I'm, the most important thing for me and our government is that our citizens are all treated the same. Mm -hmm. And I think more important than how blacks are treated or how Hispanics are treated or how white males are treated or whatever... Um, I think we're all, all of us, black, white, and Hispanic, from the most privileged generation of people that's ever existed. But mm -hmm. what we don't have is an accountable ruling class. I think criminal justice reform starts with our ruling class. You know, when, when uh, the uh, Ghislaine Maxwell uh, trial is going on, the Epstein trial is going on. Anybody did I hearing her, anything about that? Did I say her name right? Uh, I don't know. It's Maxwell, right? Max, yeah. Yeah, I know how to say your first name, Ghislaine. <laughs> but, you know, when when, uh, when criminal justice is not afforded to the upper class, how dare they talk to the, the rest of us about it? Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, there's a projection going on. I think the upper class, the ruling class is projecting the inequity they live every single day into the rest of us. I don't see that inequity going on. Mm -hmm. There are poor people, there sure. are filthy rich people, and then there's the rest of us in the middle. Mm -hmm. And they've spent a couple trillion dollars uh, in the last uh, two generations, three generations, four generations on poverty. They haven't hardly changed it 1%. We've got a certain amount of poverty in this country. And uh, I don't like... Uh, I don't like the criminal justice system being part of that discussion. They connect all of those things together. I just don't think they're really connected. I think you have rogue judges. I think you have rogue cops. Mm -hmm. Overall, I think you have a lot of even-handedness. You know, you were talking about mandatory minimums, mandatory sentencing, that legislatures cram down the judicial's throat. Mm -hmm. I think that takes everything that we want from a judge out of the courtroom. Well, that's the point of a judge. Because of a bad judge. You know, the, what happens is a bad judge in, 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 in Tucson... Uh, is going against people so the legislature finds out about it and they create a mandatory sentence so that one errant judge who's giving too light a sentence to drug users can't do that anymore and that's mm -hmm. what they put in the news and some district attorney gets to run for office for governor on it sure and so they ride some political issue like that but, and but that's managing to the exception right it goes back to our previous yeah you're totally right so what it ends up doing is is it ends up now that the nuance and judgment of every judge in the state 
has just been curtailed. Mm-hmm. So now we might as well just have an app. Right. You just here's what you did. App, here's your sentence. Here's what you did. Here's what your sentence. Right. I mean, it'll get to that point. If you make everything mandatory, then there's absolutely no judgment involved. And when there's no judgment involved, you know, half the reason fighter pilots are still required is so they can visually come up and verify before killing and blowing stuff up. Mm-hmm. Visual verification. Right. Hey, the radar's telling us this, the radar's telling us that, satellite imagery is this, but we need eyeballs on the target. Well, we've seen that fail recently, right? In Afghanistan. Everywhere. It mm-hmm. just requires good judgment, you know. So um, it sounds like you're for constraining federal power and oh. and pushing them out of the state as much as possible. Yes. Okay. A hundred percent. There's many, 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 many things that are being attempted to be federalized or centralized today. And the quick one-liner is absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Uh, so I like to have the conversation. It's not quite it, It's not quite the same, but Bitcoin or blockchain is built on some of the same or loosely framed similar principles to how our country was built. It comes from the township and it moves up, right? So you, you have control of your town and uh, the group is elected to represent and the the power structure is based here and the, the least power is up here. And what happens is it's difficult to corrupt all of these things and make the whole nation corrupt. Blockchain works the same way. You have hundreds of millions of replicas and in order to steal something, you have to be able to corrupt all of them at once and we just don't have that computing power. When you take it from the township up to the state level, you provide the opportunity to corrupt a broader spectrum. When you take it to a federal level, it's even that much more. And so the more we can push back on that, basically by the design of the constitution in our nation, that's what we should be doing. Well, you don't talk like a tea party person, but you sound like if you get there and, uh, and get a sense for the, uh, tide, you'll probably caucus half the time with those guys. And then the kind of pretty conservative kind of wing of the establishment Republican. It sounds like, you know, cause that's what guys like me are looking for when I vote. Sure. I mean, I'm voting like, where's this guy in the spectrum? Mm-hmm. And, uh, it sounds like, you know, you, you don't like, I had a gal in here recently and she is clearly a tea party. Like I was like, I was like, oh, oh, oh easy. And, 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 uh, kind of a firebrand, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Not, you don't sound like a firebrand at all. Um, it's not my goal. My goal isn't to demonize another side. You earlier, you asked me about the competition. I can list you this, the six people that are in the race. Uh, I don't know his last name, but Jerome used to play for the Raiders as a fullback. He's a traveling preacher. And then there's Tanya Wheelis. Tanya was a bank lobbyist and then worked for the McSally campaign. And then, you know, she's sort of been in the machine for a little while. Uh, Renee Lopez, city council member down in Chandler, um, was in the Navy and now in, in politics. There is Dave Giles. Uh, he has been our, he's run in this race I think the previous four times, um, been nominated twice and, and was unsuccessful. They're all decent people. I I don't, I don't think that there's any reason for me to come up here and say, well, that one's bad for this reason, or that one's bad for that reason. You, you make your own judgments. You go investigate your candidates and find out what they're all about. Yeah. I'm running against Greg Stanton and Greg Stanton represents a rubber stamp as far as I'm concerned for everything Nancy Pelosi wants to do without exception. And so Greg Stanton is the incumbent Democrat that is currently uh, in the, CD9. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so 
when when you talked about me not being a firebrand or me not necessarily being a hundred percent tea party or a hundred percent this, our society is not a hundred percent. No, of course not, thing. and it's not a critique from me. It's just no, no, you know, I don't, observationally where to kind of see where you are on the battlefield a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, all. I wasn't taking it as a critique or or a shot. What I was, I'm trying, I'm drawing a connection then back to Stanton, who yeah. literally pulls with the party, and the Democrats are really good at that, making everybody vote exactly as they want. But that's that's not representative government. That's representative Democrats. How how is he in power out there? Is it just because of Tempe and ASU or what? Because Tempe yeah, and Phoenix, ASU, Phoenix and Tempe, yeah, yeah. So he was the Phoenix mayor. He brings that power base when he comes to District 9. He brings, oh, you know, yeah, the liberals right. from that's Tempe right. okay. and, and Phoenix. Um, I, I expect this to be the case. I hope this to be the case. He's going to struggle when he loses a large piece of Tempe and Phoenix in that district. And you're going to have more people that get involved. And, you know, a, a foundational piece for my candidacy is really going to be about people standing up. I said this the other day, and I've been toying around with this. I want you to give. I want you to give a damn, and I want you to give your dollars, because that's the only way that I'm going to make it, and that's the only way we're going to make changes. So, Have you figured out how much money you need to raise to kind of put together a good campaign? <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Some people say $1.5 million. Some people say $3.5 million. And it depends how much Nancy Pelosi money shows up in town. Well, I don't think that I'll never be able to compete with that. No, no Republicans going to compete with the amount of money the Democrats are going to bring to the table. Right. Uh, it, it's a matter of truly it's a matter of messaging. It's a matter of being in front of people and speaking with integrity and hoping that people don't become single issue voters, hoping people actually investigate uh, and do their due diligence. Uh, an informed electorate matters. Uh, an electorate that cares matters. And if. If people don't want to go do their research and they want to continue to give over their power, they will continue to give over their power until they lose it. All right. Let's do a quick lightning round. All quick right. answers, okay? Sure. I'm going to throw some stuff at you and you just give me a quick one line or two line of what your thoughts are on it. Don't equivocate too much. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I'm going to give you my 60 seconds of observational advice I give everybody before they go, okay? Of course. All right. So... First of all, I hope it was fun for you coming in. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, kind of look, taking a walk through behind the curtain here at a knife yeah. making company and checking around. It's a great facility. Thanks. Um, uh, so, uh, China invades Taiwan. How do you uh, vote towards a declaration of war? Mm, that's tough, but um, it's a real issue. And you said it, it's on. The, you said it's on the docket. So it, it is. Me... It's a real issue. It's on the docket. I would vote up. Okay. So we'd vote for a declaration of war and we have to stick by our ally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Russia through Crimea invades the Ukraine. The Europeans want us in to help them defend. They're concerned about the Russians running into Germany next, which they won't do. What are your thoughts on that? Couple quick, couple quick ones. I, I would say I would vote no. Uh, and they're, they're not... It's it's not part of our strategic treaty partnership, although treaties have a whole different world for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a whole different discussion. Um, we should have handled that now, not fair, that. Fair enough. Um, let's just play a little amazing Karnak. Uh, the Texas case is reviewed by the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade is heavily curtailed or overturned. Okay. Democrats in Congress put up a pro-choice amendment to the constitution how do you vote no okay 
It's too blanket. Uh, and what if, what if they come up with a... Let's say there was a magical bipartisan bill that had... Let me just... Let me write a crazy bill here. Okay. All right? And you just tell me kind of what your thoughts are. I'm going to just do some crazy bills here, and you kind of tell me what your thoughts are on sure. them. Okay? Um, no late-term abortion, no second-term abortion, first-term abortion in the cases of rape and incest. Um, no family needed, but in all other instances, a parent or guardian is needed or a boyfriend is needed. Um, after viability, no abortions unless the health of the mother or rape, in the exceptions of uh, rape and incest. They want to make that constitutional amendment. No. And... Before you go down all the rest of the list. And I won't. Um, go ahead. It's not a federal issue. Okay. Now, I don't mind what you just presented on a state's level. Uh, I think that there's some tweaking, tailoring that that needs to be there. But... Let, let me unpack it a tiny sure. bit for you. So uh, let's say you had to because the feds were taking it. Uh, I mean. It... Let's say you had to vote on it. I vote no. Okay. I mean, honestly, it's going to get back to what I said before. Uh, mean what you say, say what you mean. Right is right, wrong is wrong. My job is to push back on the federalization of everything. That's a state's rights issue as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So we can present and continue, uh, but I still think it comes back to that. All right. Well, what if Arizona all of a sudden is like crazy pro-choice? <laughs> and I mean, this is the reality, right? Sure. Then yeah. we, we're encountering this split as we speak. Mm -hmm. Arizona is a conservative yet pro-choice state. Sure. And um, the only reason the Republican Party is pro-life is because it has a big, big religious component that has kind of been abandoned by the left in my opinion just observationally over the last hundred years sure let's say you're in this position where you're in a pro-choice state that's rabidly pro-choice because mm -hmm. we are sure and you get this chance to shoot down this amendment at the federal level even and if you and if you vote for it um you get to basically kind of curtail the free-for-all on abortion i mean i uh... I still think it comes back to the same thing. Okay. It, it's a state's rights issue. Okay. So you're going to just stay out of it completely because it's a state's rights thing and you're running for U.S. so you don't have to deal with it. Well, I mean, if you want to ask me as it's posed, if I was a state legislator, then I'm happy to answer the question. Okay. All right. Well, you're not running for state, so I'll let you go on that one. <laughs> Let's go to the next thing. Um, talk to me about um, at the federal level... Um, um, how do you feel about and you know what I don't want to put you I don't want to put you this early in your campaign I don't want to I want to put you under the thumb too much um where can people if they want to support you where can they go to make a donation to your campaign and and, and support what you're about sure uh, Kelly Cooper Arizona.com so k-e-l-l-y-c-o-o-p-e-r Arizona Arizona yes dot com mm -hmm. um and then what, what's your next event you have coming up? Uh, I don't have anything planned for the remainder of the year. I'm working on a, uh, a golf uh, outing in January, and I have smaller speaking events. Uh, I can't think of any of them off the top of my head right now. Okay. I'm in that transition period where... Yeah. No, I know you just lost... Uh, you're reshuffling your team. I get it. Right. How about um, do you belong to any civic organizations or groups? Uh, yeah. You know, JC's or Rotary Club or what, what do you, what do you belong to? 
So later this month, I'm being initiated into the Elks Lodge down in Chandler. Uh, I am a member of the American Legion, lifetime member. I am not a member of the VFW, although I, I hang around there and veterans of foreign wars, yep. never in a war zone, much as I was deployed. So it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, a lifetime member of the NRA, the NFIB, uh, franchise business, yep. um, a member of... I started my own club here, Maricopa County Republican Veterans Club. The goal was to help catch veterans and connect them with the right services. And as I've taken on this new role, that's sort of kind of fallen a little okay. bit. There's not a lot of work being done over there outside of my own individual work, uh, which is kind of the same, but not under that umbrella. All right. Uh, Do you have a slogan for your campaign yet? Not 100%. I would just say right is right and right wrong is wrong until we put some stuff together. Okay. Right. Uh, there's a couple of things that we didn't talk about that I think are important. Both of my children are public charter school. Tells you everything you need to know about where I stand in school choice. Yeah, for uh, sure. But it gets back to meritocracies. Uh, and it's not about demonizing the teachers or even the, the schools themselves. It's about not having the federal government controlling what should be happening on a local level. Yeah. Um, the economy is huge for me. We can set up a whole nother podcast to talk about the economy. Yeah. But ultimately the quick one liner is manipulation in the supply of labor through fear and buying them off is, has had a huge effect in where the economy is today. Yeah. Um, you know, I see a couple of things and I've said this to people before. I said, sure. you give me almost any school in the country and you let me run it. Mm -hmm. Like, let me really fucking run it. <laughs> Education would be sterling. Mm-hmm. Let me fire and hire. Sure. Let me reward excellence mm -hmm. and let me punish failure or let me correct failure. Meritocracies. <laughs> all the teachers, it, we could use the same teachers we have now, mm -hmm. a bunch of nutbag lefties. We could take a bunch of nutbag lefties and we can fix that. Yeah. And uh, that's the thing that people don't understand. And we'll, I see this common thing in our discussion today. It comes back to vision and leadership of someone in charge. Mm -hmm. The vision and leadership just the mental pivot and the ability to act on it right? Uh, and the belief and everyone's belief that you will changes the scenario. It changes the landscape Sure, because everything's in stasis. All you have to do is nudge it a little bit and it's huge. Yeah. Um, so there's another piece to schools though, and it's why you find success in the charter schools and the private schools versus the public schools. Parent involvement is encouraged in mm -hmm. the other two. Right. And it's discouraged in the public school. So you, it's you crazy. See it's there. crazy how the, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can see when you get there, they're walled off and they say it's for safety, mm -hmm. but they're walled off emotionally too. Yeah. They don't want you involved. No, no, they don't. You know, I'm on infinite, uh, infinite campus and, uh, Google classrooms a couple times a week with the kids just looking at their stuff. Mm -hmm. They've, it's clunky. It's cumbersome. It's hard to reach into the system and see what's going on. Yep. And now the teachers love it. You have to email them. <laughs> you, you can't stop in and talk to teachers anymore yeah. and and i don't like it now my and, wife volunteers in the school she goes and reads with the kids and that's it's hard to set that up now mm -hmm. too you know i went and did the fingerprint card yep. and the police background check and then all the kids trips got canceled because of covid of course so they've missed out on all their you know cultural trips that yep. you know were normally happening all the field trips and stuff like that yeah, they're doing them virtually now right it's sad what's happened yeah and that way they can control it and you get to see just their little version of what an octopus is supposed to look like right. out in catalina uh, i'm i'm just 
you know, it's funny. The last two years have made me, I'm revolutionary now. Like mm-hmm. I'm hostile and I'm revolutionary. Before I was just like wise ass. Right. And now I'm, what they've done is they've just taken a wise ass patriot and they've made me a hostile focused patriot. And that's. There's more and more of that. And that's actually not good for them. Mm-hmm. Because what they should have done is they should have left me alone. They should have let me just run my business and they should have let me go to Costco and not wear a mask. And they, sh- they just shouldn't have fucked with me. And they shouldn't have locked up the school so that I can't go see the teachers because it makes me hostile. Yeah. And uh, but what the teachers don't get is big a pain in the ass as all of us parents are, is them connecting with us and showing that they're doing a good job and engaging gets us more on their side. Yeah, 100%. But when they're locked off behind the cloister, we, we you know, we, we, we can't. Remember, the parents used to be the at-home arm of the school because we all worked together. Mm-hmm. And now the school pushed the parents out. It's very hard to help your kids now. Mm-hmm. I'm really active to help them. I, it's hard to find out what to do when. It's hard to get copies of anything. Yeah. You know, the kids don't even bring home textbooks anymore. You know, they, they have them, they leave them at school and they give them little handouts. Yeah. And, I, and, and okay, the kids aren't carrying around a 50-pound book bag, but you don't even see what they're reading anymore. Yeah. Like, why is that going on? And that's going on in my Cave Creek School District right yeah. now. I'm like, where's the textbooks? I want to see what you're working on. Yeah. And you don't see that. I, I just, I don't think it's, I think it's, you know, you talked about this uh, sanitizing light. I think it's important for there to be transparency in all the education that's going on, mm-hmm. not all the separation that's happened. Correct. And COVID's made us more separated than ever, and it pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you got any uh, parting shots you'd like to uh, shoot out to anybody? No, I think that it's time. It's time for all of us to stand up. It's time for all of us to investigate, stop being single-issue voters, uh, go out and do what's best for you. And that takes getting yourself educated. Go to all of my opponents' websites. Read what they're about. Go to my website. Read what I'm about. And then go see what Greg's all about because what he presents on social media is this warm fuzzy, um, but what he votes on, it's not the same. So I'm warm and fuzzy? Oh my God. Not this, I'm sorry, my bad. Not this Greg, Greg Stanton. Oh, <laughs> I, I was like, holy shit, I don't present warm and fuzzy. I'm a prickly son of a bitch. So, uh, oh, Greg Stanton. But I'd, rather have, but I'd rather have prickly son of a bitch that is genuine and honest and truthful and I can count on they are who they say they are versus a wolf in sheep's clothing or a snake in the toilet or yeah, any of the no, rest. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I'm, uh, I, I'm just, uh, I almost want it. Um, I heard there's some sort of, there's a lead injection for, for liberalism, and I, I just want to make sure they all get the vaccine. Right? <laughs> like, you want to, if I have to take your vaccine, then you have to take my vaccine. There it's you go. got a little more lead base to it. It's totally different. Fair trade off. Okay. Well, listen, fun having you in. I hope you had fun coming in. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, appreciate you being here. I would in, extend my invitation to you as you get further in the campaign. If you want to sure. come back, reach out to Bobby and uh, let's let's talk again. Um, after, especially after you've uh, done some groups and kind of honed your message a little bit more, sure, of course. I'd love to talk with you again. And it'll be great. F- uh, it's great fun to see everybody's evolution yeah. of their message as it kind of comes into focus as they mm-hmm. get nearer the election. So yeah, it's uh, difficult for me because it's been business and running business. And then knowing that something has to change and trying to evolve from a business operator to 
somebody that's going to represent change. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a steep hill. Yeah, no. You run into swamp and all the other stuff no, that goes along with it. A, listen, there's a big learning curve here, and uh, and then and then, you know, if you have a good Republican campaign manager, he's gonna, as you walk out of this office today, say, "God damn it, you can't be that squishy about abortion." <laughs> and uh, and the truth is, um, everybody is. Sure. When we're outside of a 10 second sound bit, and you. You you get uh, 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 the the your religious you know sixty two year old voter, but when you start pressing them about their niece, mm -hmm. you start pressing them about the realities of their own life, they start to him and haw a little bit. And mm -hmm. I think it's good to get everybody in that him and haw uh, about their stark opinions that don't affect them. Yeah. And uh, it, what it, what it means is we're not so hard on other people for their decisions. And we, we're not in such a goddamn fight over things that I see 60-year-olds ready to kill each other. Mm -hmm. They're not getting pregnant. What are they worked up about? <laughs> you know, like if, if, uh, if, if, if men aren't supposed to have an opinion about abortion, then neither are women over the age of 50. Because yeah, they can't have babies either, right? So yeah, For the most part, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, well, well look, if that's, what the, if that's what the requirement is. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I agree with you. So what about the guy that gets sued 18 years later for the kid that he didn't know he had and gets the judgment against him that he has to pay all the back child support for the kid he didn't know he had or wasn't provided the opportunity to be involved in or show support for? And now he's a hated absentee father that didn't even know. I mean, that, and it's, that not, does, it's not a one-way street. No, it's not. And I, I always start the conversation about responsibility mm -hmm. because if you talk about responsibility, personal accountability starts to connect. And what's interesting is if you take uh, pink hat wearing liberal Democrats and right. you query them separate from politics, if you query them on issues and life, mm -hmm. crazy lefties, they answer questions very close to conservative because it's correct, right. and everybody knows it. Right is right, wrong is wrong. And they issue themselves to the left with an issue. They've mm -hmm. got some special issue, but black rights, Hispanic rights, uh, border rights. Mm -hmm. They find some little issue, and they, that's the coalition of left is the coalition of narcissists about one issue. Right. And if and and and. I don't find that as much on the right. I don't find, I don't Not find as it. much. No, I don't. That's why I said as much. I don't find it as much. It's there. Sure. Um, I just think there's so much more that w when you query people about the entire palette of life, mm -hmm. we start all answering really close to the same in the middle because we have this inculcated sense of fairness. And, you know, you ask a, you ask a pro-choice, crazy lefty, 42 year old about her straight a daughter in science class mm -hmm. and the teacher comes to class and says hey you know i'm being evaluated by the state on my performance and i've got two kids that are failing we want to take one of her letters give her a b and let that d student get a c and that gets everybody in my pass zone and then i get you know a, a straight a rating and a, and a pay raise next year Ask the kid how they feel that earned the A about getting a B. And ask mm -hmm. the mom how she feels about her daughter getting a B. Right. And that is wealth redistribution, all the crazy shit that they vote for. At their core, they actually believe in fairness. Well, so I'll give you I'll give you an example of that. That's really easy in my industry. In the front of house, you have servers, bartenders, all that. Do you want to work in a restaurant as a server? 
that shares tips amongst everybody? Or do you want to be on your own merit? Own merit, it, for sure. Guaranteed. No matter what age you are, you want to be on your own merit. So I, I go into this really swanky restaurant up in uh, Portland a couple mm -hmm. of years ago because we had Blade Show up there and it was a trade show. And I'm like, oh, I'll go to Portland. Now, Portland's a beautiful city. Sure. Uh, but it's full of a bunch of fucking gomers. So I'm up there and we go out to this really nice goddamn place. I'm a foodie and we sit down and I, I, uh, was talking to the waitress and it's, you know, it's a really nice place. And she says, she was answering me with this kind of pie eyed, uh, uh, demeanor and, uh, Jeff, uh, the, the six, six, my business development yeah, guy, you might yeah, have met him. Yeah. So Jeff was there with me and I said, say, hey, you, you, you you guys, uh, you guys pull your tips here. She said, "Oh yes, it's the best thing ever." And 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 you know, so I said, "Well, you know, the service is going to be awful." You know, I like I said it right to her. I'm like, and she's like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "Oh, that's just, that's totally commie. That's commie stuff. That means you can have a sucky day and everyone's going to carry you." Yep. And then what it means is everybody's working their ass off will dope off because they're pissed off that the. The other servers are dragging them down. And she's like, why would you say that? I go, because well, they do this all over Europe, and the service is the worst. Yep. <laughs> so we sat there, and the service was mediocre at best. Sure. From a really nice place. And I was thinking to myself, the owner, who's a capitalist, functioning in a capitalist system, has allowed Marxism to ruin the front house. Right. Because... The, the most important thing is drink service and service up front. Even if the food, if you're supposed to be a nine, if the food's a six that day, you'll get forgiven for the food. Sure. If people are wrapped, wrapped up in the service and the ambiance. Mm -hmm. And so they spent all this money on this bitchin' interior, you know, big bucks. Right. And the food was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the service was just mediocre. And it's like buying a Lamborghini and putting shit tires on it. Right. Like getting some generics from Costco. And it's hard to recover from that. I, yeah. I'll, I would never go back. Exactly. It's just unbelievable. There's a place here in town that is a, it's a Michelin rated experience, right? A Michelin level experience. They don't have a Michelin star. And we I sat down and had this European and I love going to Michelin restaurants and seeing this experience because I think it's fun to see the unfolding of a story being told by a great chef. You know, sure. I think it's fun. It's a cool human experience, just like great music. Huh? So I'm sitting in this restaurant and I'm and I and I shit you not, Amy Amy saw this whole thing happen. They put our food down and and, and there was like five people waiting on us. Mm -hmm. So there's not one person fully invested in us. So they put the food down. And it's very European, this Michelin service. There's lots of people buzzing around taking care of you, right? Right. And, and the server goes away. And I'm looking, I'm like, I don't think that's what I ordered. But, you know, you don't know what shit looks like. It's kind of creative. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't think that's what I ordered. So I kind of looked at it. And I'm going to say a full two minutes after the plate touched my table, Server came back over, picked up our plates and said, oh, those aren't for you. Wrong table. And then walked over to this table and put the food on the table. Oh, my God. Oh, I. they did that. Now, this place was super expensive. And, you know, it was it was everything I expected until that moment. And I, and I said to Amy, I go, oh, my God, they just took our plates that they walked away from and put them on their table. They should have walked to the kitchen right away if, well, and, if, and, and, and done new food for them. 
And if they if they hadn't left their hand yet, then you can turn around and walk back to the kitchen. Sure. But if they left your hand and you walked away from the table, you can't pick them up and put them on another table. I almost fell out of my chair. Yeah. Because I've eaten at some Michelin restaurants and I was like, oh. And and so one little thing like that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, I like I'll never go back. <laughs> well, why would you? No, that was obviously somebody made a boo-boo and had a brain fart in, in, in my presence. But the fact that's you know, the, 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 the good places I go to never have anything like that happen. And right. there's somebody stopping anything like that from happening, like in right. real time. Right. So I couldn't believe it. It was the funniest thing I ever saw. And I'll tell you the name of the restaurant after we're off air. Fair enough. Hey, listen, great having you here. Um, uh, and I wish you the very best of luck. If there's anything we do to support you, let us know. Tell everybody again, it's uh Kelly Cooper, Arizona.com. Correct. And, uh, that'll get you links to all my different social media sites all that there's links to sign the petition there's links to contribute to the campaign you know uh too many of you out there have a tendency uh and too many of us as americans we have a tendency to vote for the president and we're kind of quiet for four years and then we show up and vote again stand up if there's anything we know from this last year of um, what's happened in the fallout from the 2020 debacle is that um if you like one group or the other you have to be supporting them at the state and local level because these all buttress one another it's layers of a cake and when you get a president at the top that doesn't have those layers below them they can't weather the storm of an assault and uh we have to be voting locally we have to be voting for our school boards and our judges and uh, one of the most important things you can vote for in your town, the most important thing that will affect you in your life is voting for the district attorney in, in your town, uh, in your city. District attorneys are a big deal. See who's funded by Soros and vote, vote for the other candidate because he's destroying the country from the inside. Uh -huh. uh, and, then, and then extend your worldview into who you're voting for at the state and at the federal level. And then as we vote at the federal level, it's super important we're thinking about these Congress congressmen and women that we vote for. Who is going to be there weathering the storm? Who says they're conservative, but they're really not conservative? And then, you know, as Kelly's mentioning here, you can't be so myopic about one issue that you put somebody in who checks off your issue button and they ruin your, your country. But they're good on that one issue you're concerned about. You have to vote for the whole you have to vote for the whole piece. You can't just pick the one color you're concerned about. And if that's the case, if you are an issue voter, then I would recommend you not vote. You're fucking stupid. You shouldn't vote on one issue. If you're so myopic and stupid, you can't get educated on our society and you vote on one issue, stay the fuck home, child, and don't vote. Okay, well, that's our public service announcement. Thanks for stopping by the Greg Medford Show, Phoenix, Arizona. Good luck. Remember, check us out on Rumble. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook. You can check out my company, Medford Knife and Tool. And you can also go over to ASK Knives, our new global brand we're launching in January of 2022. A lot of stuff going on out here in Phoenix. I'm out.